Welcome to Let's Talk Sales. This is the podcast for anyone who is interested in growing sales. In honor of National Women in Business Month, we are resharing an episode that aired in April 2020. To learn more about our featured guest, head to criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod246. This is a conversation between Elizabeth Frederick and Alexandra Adamson. This is Elizabeth Frederick. And today, I'm speaking to the executive director at WISE, an organization which is dedicated to developing the next generation of female sales leaders. She's also the VP of Partnerships at Closer IQ, which empowers successful growth by helping companies build high-performing sales organizations. She's a venture partner at Co-Founder Partners and an official member of the Forbes HR Council. So she's got a lot of expertise that our listeners are going to enjoy learning from. She is based in one of my most favorite cities, uh, San Diego, California, which is actually home to my newest nephew, who is about three weeks old today. So um, definitely need to get out there soon. We are so glad to have you. Welcome to the show, Alexandra Adamson. Thanks for having me, Elizabeth. All right. Well, I just gave the, the kind of LinkedIn bio, but that's not all of your story and who you are. So I'd love to hear you introduce yourself to our listeners. Maybe talk about where you developed passion for what it is that you're doing and some of the key stops on the journey to where you are today. Um, absolutely. So I, I think my LinkedIn can kind of be confusing because right now, especially, I have, I have a handful of different roles, and so I've I've been on the phone or I've met people that are like, "So what? What do you do? Where do you work? What's going on?" Um, for for background, I started my career in the Bay Area, um, and was with Best Recruiting, which is a, a talent agency that focuses on sales specific hiring for startups. Um, I was there for a number of years. Was really really fortunate to get to work with a lot of up-and-coming um, teams that then went on to become hugely successful companies. The Meraki's of the world that went on to be acquired by Cisco, PagerDuty IPO'd last year, the year before, um, and, and dozens of others. So I got to work with some really incredible CEOs and founders, some amazing VPs of sales who um, really taught me what, what great sales talent looked like and how to go about hiring and retaining, enabling, training these these folks. Um, in January of 17, I ended up moving out to New York and I took the role as director of talent with Bowery Capital, which is a seed stage venture capital fund focused on investing in B2B software companies. I spent a couple of years there working with portfolio companies on building their go-to-market strategy and specifically uh, building out their go-to-market teams, so their sales, marketing, customer success teams once that strategy was in place. When I was at Bowery, I got to know the Closer IQ team pretty well. They had run some some really good searches for Bowery Capital companies. And Jordan Wan, the founder of Closer IQ, one of the co-founders, um, and I you know, started to develop a friendship. And every time we would get together or catch up, we kept coming back to this topic around women in sales specifically in that there was such a gap in the market for uh, female sales executives. So many companies were kind of talking about the importance of it, but but no one was really doing anything about it. And that's when WISE was was really built. So the end of 2017, um, we were putting on panel events in New York, and it was it was really off the side of my desk, off the side of Jordan's desk. The Closer IQ team was was putting marketing resources towards it. Their team was helping at events, and we were we were just doing this for fun because it was something we were passionate about. And so through 2018, it started to grow. We started to bring on sponsors. We ended up growing in in Boston. 
Um, then companies in San Francisco were coming to us and asking us to get more involved out there. And so really made sense to, to turn what we were then calling just women in sales into a full-time thing. So in April of last year, I, I can't believe it's actually been a year now. Uh, April of last year, I ended up coming over full-time to grow WISE. We ended up rebranding Women in Sales to WISE, which stands for Women in Sales Everywhere. It's a division of Closer IQ. So my focus is scaling, scaling wise, um, you know, growing our our footprint there. And then I also um, run run our new business and partnerships team on the recruit side of the house, which focuses on scaling teams uh, that have both modern sales organizations. And then we also recently just launched All Stack Talent, which is um, recruiting for engineers. So. The, the Closer IQ side of the house is really focused on building teams and empowering mm-hmm. people growth for companies at all stages. And then WISE as a division is devoted to creating this next generation of, of female sales leaders. That's really interesting. And I want to kind of take that um, a little bit, I guess, in order. So let's let's start with kind of what you do at, at Closer IQ. So from from everything that you just shared, you took that experience that you built in recruiting and the focus on startups that you um, learned really at Bowery, and you developed a significant expertise in helping startups, as you said, develop their go-to-market plans, focusing on the sales and marketing teams. I know that we have a lot of listeners who are you know, entrepreneurs, maybe solopreneurs at this point. Um, or they've tried to build sales structure in the past and haven't been able to see it successful. So what are some of the key principles that you've learned um, to help build a sales organization for a startup or an early stage company? So something that that we refer to quite often um, is the sales learning curve. And this was developed by some Stanford professors a while ago, um, Andreessen Horowitz then came in and uh, really started to, to grow this and, and talk to their portfolio companies about it. And it, the sales learning curve has four major buckets in it. So the first bucket is um, just ignition stage. It's it's founder-led selling, and it's, it's the stage where you're going to fail fast. You're really trying to learn what your ideal customer profile looks like, what they care about, how you should be taking things to market. Um, mm-hmm. It's so critical that founders do this piece because I think especially for technical founders, there can be this kind of uh, sense that sales is a necessary evil. Like, oh God, selling, that sounds terrible. I don't want to do that. Can I just bring that <laughs> Dirty word. Uh, and, and so I think especially at Bowery, this was something we talked with our founders quite a lot about, which is just, you know, you, you have to sell. It's so important because you are going to be a better product leader knowing what customers want and having these conversations. Um, so I would say first and foremost, just make sure that as a founder, as an entrepreneur, you are doing the selling in the early days because it's virtually impossible then to move to the next stage, which is initiation. And that's when you bring in your first couple of sellers, your renaissance reps, your people who are doing the entire sales cycle. Um, you can't, adequately understand what that profile needs to look like unless you've actually done it. And and so I think sometimes it's Mm -hmm. very easy to say, great, we just got funding. I can afford to hire a salesperson. I'm just going to pass the, you know, get rid of it, get it off my plate. Don't buy step founder led selling because 
your Renaissance reps, though they're amazing and though they're going to continue to tweak and refine that sales strategy and they're going to help you think through how, how um, you know, what the sales process is going to look like. And ideally, they're going to shorten that deal cycle and increase average contract value, all these things. They can't, they can't do it all totally from scratch. Um, mm-hmm. And then just for the, for the sake of finishing the sales learning curve, it, it deviates slightly from your question. The next step is transition. And, and that's when you're bringing in your VP of sales and you start to you know, standardize a playbook and you start to bring in some other sellers. And then execution is the last stage. That's really your coin operated. You've got different divisions of your sales team. You have a highly functioning marketing team. That's, that's when you're more plug and play. But I think so often companies think they can go straight from like, stage to transition and hire that VP of sales and, and the first two steps of founder-led selling and having renaissance reps cannot be passed over. That's that's so incredibly powerful. Um, it actually reminds me of a conversation I just had um, a couple of weeks ago on the podcast with Jonathan Grishbowski. Um, and he runs a company called Penji, but we talked about um, developing a business and he's developed a number of different businesses. And that was one of the key principles that he identified is you need to build out your sales um, process. You need to build out your message, understand your buyer personas, um, your key solutions and, and the messages that are going to resonate with your audience as the founder. And um, it's funny to hear a founder who, who, you know, innately kind of understands that principle that you're talking about. But I think there are so many founders who are technical people and they're passionate about the product. They're passionate about, um, you know, the, the solution and don't necessarily have a natural passion for selling. But it's so confusing to me because if you love what it is that you developed, wouldn't you want more people to use it? (laughs) Right. And and selling is just allowing more people to discover this amazing thing you built. And, and, I remember having a conversation a couple of years ago, and this has stuck with me forever. And they're likely, or it's stuck with me since then. It will likely stick with me forever. Um, I, I was sitting across the table from a founder, one of the smartest people I've ever been lucky enough to sit in a room with. And um, first time, first time entrepreneur had built a, a very, very strong product. And we were talking about go to market strategy. And he, he looked at me with total confidence and said, well, the product will sell itself. They, you know, people see it and they're going to want this. They're going to realize it's, you know, their business can't live without it. And I said, I, I think that's wonderful. How are they going to hear about it? And <laughs> the look on his face, like you, you got to see the light bulb go off above his head. And it was, it was a great moment because that was, that was the turning point. It was like, oh, you're right. They, you have to lead a horse to water. Um, you have to, you definitely, have to here because it doesn't matter how amazing the product is if, if they're never introduced. Definitely. And I really love that example as well because something that all founders can understand, and this is important for steps one and step two, is it's not about necessarily cold calling. So many people think of sales and they think it must be that I'm just calling people and, and, you know, And that is an important part of the process for a lot of sales, and that's fine. But um, as a founder, especially, you're in a position to sell in different ways that the rest of your team will never be able to follow. So to me, you kind of need to do two things during that ignition stage. You need to do the PR 
stuff that your salespeople won't be able to do later on. And you're going to initiate some of the marketing functions and some of the big picture messaging um, functions. But then you do need to articulate the the basics of the selling process and where are leads going to come from and um, what does the buyer journey tend to look like and what's the information that you need to provide to them along that journey. Um, because those first salespeople, you know, like you said, that that initiation stage, I have seen so many companies. Uh, we tend to work with clients that are a little bit farther along in their in their sales development, but I've still heard from multiple companies who say, you know, I hired eight salespeople over the course of the last two years, and I fired all of them, and I keep just like hiring people and firing them. And I'm like, you, you missed something. <laughs> you've got you've got a problem here. It's not just that you're hiring all the wrong people. Um, there, there's some work you haven't done in setting them up to be successful. <laughs> and and. It can be very, very tough. I think especially in the early days, it's easy to assume that the reason someone's struggling in a sales role is because they're not a good seller or they're not working mm-hmm. hard enough or they're not doing they're not doing enough. They could be doing more. Um, and in some cases, you know that that can happen. Um, but more often than not, I think if, if you have a really clear understanding of who you should be going after. It doesn't even have to be perfect, but at least some sort of direction where you can tell someone, hey, run this way. And if you run for 20 miles and don't find anything, we're going to go this other direction because we have enough data to show that it, you know that other direction might make sense as option B. They can likely produce something, but if, if everybody's coming up empty-handed, it probably means that that sales architecture hasn't been properly built, and therefore this person's trying to do something on very faulty infrastructure. Absolutely, and I really like that um, that this model introduces sales leadership later because I've also seen where people think the first person I need to hire is a sales manager, and that we're going to build a sales process around them. And what you're kind of doing, if I if I internalize this model, um, is you're trying to make that sales manager like the founder. And you're trying to get them to develop the initial sales process and sales structure and then hire into it. And you're almost trying to repeat that ignition stage with a second person. And it's a lot better to use the founder's energy and the founder's focus and their subject matter expertise and their passion to, to build out the sales process, get a couple of salespeople to really validate that and, and execute on it and figure out what can somebody who's not the founder do. And then you bring in a leader to hold people accountable to that process and to continue to standardize it and to build it out. But you don't necessarily want to bring in that leader too soon. Correct. Correct. And and a couple of things to note on that. VPs of sales are very expensive, as they should be. Mm. Um, most companies shouldn't be spending that kind of money on that kind of hire before they're they're generating consistent revenue. Um, most VPs of sales, a true VP of sales, is managing managers or managing very senior reps. Um, your VP of a true VP of sales probably hasn't coached or worked with an SDR in a while. And if they have, maybe it's been, you know, from an arm's distance, but more often mm. than not, you need individual contributors who want to carry a bag. They want to carry a quota and actually sell. Um, maybe some frontline managers who can can be working with your different, the different divisions of your sales team um, 
but you likely don't need a true VP until further down the road. You likely don't need a true CRO until you're further down the road. And when I mean further down the road, I'm not saying, you know, X amount in funding or you must be this many people. It's, it's really more a function of where you are um, in the revenue journey. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I think, I think hiring a really talented up and coming individual contributor who has a lot of um, a lot of the right soft skills to turn into a great manager is an awesome hire for early stage companies because it gives them growth opportunity to then hire underneath them and you're able to groom them to become, you know, a frontline manager of some kind. They're probably not going to be your VP who, Mm -hmm. you know, is going to take you from zero to 50 million, but they could be your person that takes you from zero to 10. And that's a very important step. Absolutely. And um, like you just touched on there, sales is a position where depending on the organization, there may not be much or any room for advancement. And so to be able to to see that potential um, is is a really exciting thing. Now, I wanted to to tie us, you know, we've been talking in a very um, big picture space, uh, you know, principles and best practices that are relevant all of the time. But we're certainly in um, a pretty unique situation right now. So we're talking in early April. This episode's going to go up soon. And um, they're, they're, we're in crisis, basically, as a country. You know, we're, we're looking at the effects of the coronavirus pandemic, um, the lockdowns across much of the country, which is, which is causing business to slow down. As you talk to people, as I know you're talking to a lot of um, business leaders, entrepreneurs. What are some of the challenges that you're hearing from them in this time? And and are there any best practices that you've identified um, for people who are looking to address the situation? Uh, I mean, I think we could probably <laughs> do a podcast on on uh, sales and COVID and how this is impacting not only business; it's impacting the entire world. Um, you know, I think. It's obviously touching everyone. That's kind of the understatement of the century. This is impacting everyone. Uh, Mm -hmm. It has changed the dynamics of sales in a way that I've never seen before. And honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if for the, you know, after this, I I never see anything like this impact our industry the same way again. This is Mm -hmm. unprecedented. Um, there are, there are so many things that I think companies need to be taking into account when they're thinking about their sales strategy right now. Uh, you know, first and foremost, leading with empathy. We talk a lot about selling, um, selling with a value add, making sure that you're actually being really thoughtful in your messaging and, and you're not just kind of spraying and praying and <laughs> adding, adding things to a drip cadence and mix max and hoping that something gets open or or you get a hit on something that doesn't work. Um, Mm -hmm. It never has, but it really doesn't work now. The amount of, of empathy and care that I think sellers are needing to add to their process because their, their prospects, their prospects might not even have jobs. Their prospects may have been fired. Uh, the are prospecting into could be having huge budget issues, in which case they're not taking on any new vendors. Um, you know, companies companies are are I think either going into lockdown mode where they're trying to just do everything they can to play defense and keep 
what they have in the bank because we're not sure what the economy is going to do. And, you know, there are some companies too, the Zooms of the world uh, on the, on the closer IQ recruit side right now, we're working with a company called Mural that um, is doing exceptionally well uh, because they, they enable remote work. And so they're still, that's actually, <laughs> so I, I think there are some opposite ends of the spectrum, but uh, more often than not, I think, there was some controversy in the early days of this where people were saying, hey, don't don't worry about addressing this on calls. Just kind of get to it. And I vehemently disagree with that. I think you're remiss not to get on the phone and ask someone how they're doing and actually care. And if they want to tell you about what a crazy day they're having because they're trying to you know, make sure that their $6 million book of business isn't churning, but they also have to be a homeschool parent have that conversation. Mm-hmm. We're all human at the end of the day. Um, and I think everyone needs that. So I, I've kind of gone on a tangent, but I think the, the biggest thing I've learned through all of this is selling with empathy is never going to go out of style. And now more than ever, it is absolutely imperative that with any cold outreach, with any follow-ups, with any companies that are reaching out and saying, hey, we have to get creative with payment terms right now because we just had to lay off 30% of our team because we're really worried about cash flow have that conversation and understand that this isn't because people want to do this. It's in a lot of ways, it's because their hands are truly tied. And, Mm -hmm. you know, frankly, a lot of, this isn't anyone's fault. So (laughs) uh, exactly. And and staying human will go a very long way because when this does pass, the companies that handled this well will be remembered. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's that's so important. Just that reminder. Um, I I use this a lot in trainings, but we're people selling to people. And like you said, now more than ever, it's really important to reflect on that. You have no idea what situation the person you're about to call is in. They could have a family member in the hospital right now struggling for their life. They could have lost somebody that was really important to them. Um, They could have lost their job. They could have had to let people on their team go. They could have um, taken a salary cut. There's so many different situations. And if you just try to engage with somebody and ignore what's going on, that it's going to seem callous because it is callous and it's going to seem inappropriate because it is inappropriate. And so just really truly caring for people. Um, what, one thing that we're seeing both ourselves and, and with a lot of our clients is people answer the phone right now. You know, lots of people yeah. are, are willing to take calls and you can engage with them. And if you're doing that and jumping on the phone and trying to sell them, that's not what it's for. But really, this is a great time to reach out to your network and just connect, check in how they're doing. Um, you never know what opportunity you might discover to work together. Um, that's that's gravy. That's that's fine. That's on top of the, the personal connection that you can make. And what I'm advising a lot of our clients who are seeing, you know, their forecast for Q2 just isn't going to happen. And they don't know what is going to happen, but they know they're not going to hit their target. Um, What I'm telling them is, you know, I want you to focus on two things. First of all, if you have any opportunities in the pipeline, you need to stay on top of, I understand the status and I'm potentially moving things forward. And it might be that I'm moving forward. You know, it's, it's tiny little baby steps forward, but you're still moving it forward. (laughs) And second is you're consistently engaging with people. And what you can have as a goal is when we get through this initial 
shock. And hopefully, you know, we can get through an initial shock and and get to kind of a new normal relatively soon where things are moving again. Um, and I think we're all hopeful that that that, that happens. That you want to have deeper relationships with people than we came into it with. You want to have better engagement. Um, you want to have reconnected with people that you hadn't spoken to in a while. And if that's your goal, that's that's a very reasonable to have. And it doesn't have to be, you know, I sold X million dollars in right. in revenue because that might not be possible. But if you can say, my goal is I want to reconnect with ten former clients and. Um, and engage with them such that it would be appropriate to consider talking about new business when things settle down. That's a reasonable goal to have. I I think that's that's so on point and and so accurate. And it, it's okay to have many goals right now that aren't tied to revenue, like you're saying. I I mean, even with our with our new business team on the quarter IQ recruit front right now, responses mm-hmm. responses counting as wins. If you are getting, and it's, it doesn't even have to be like a, yes, let's get on a call. Just any sort of, Hey, thanks so much. Now's not the right time. Okay. It was, mm-hmm. it was, it, it's, it's such a tough time to be a totally you know, new business focused salesperson. You have to know that this is going to be kind of a slog and take, take little wins and understand that you're too, I, I think, Really, everyone is understanding that Q2 is going to be ugly across the board. Accepting that, knowing that you can only control the controllables and um, utilizing this time to, like you're saying, build deeper relationships, see where you can add value that maybe historically, you know, those things haven't been a priority because other stuff mm-hmm. is more important. What can you do to be creative and add value in ways that that you haven't been able to before? Hey, maybe you realize that that there's a niche that isn't being addressed, and now you've got a whole new, a whole new, um, you know, system that you can you can potentially utilize when things do pick up. Um, so I think the the folks that are being creative right now and using this time to kind of adapt and overcome and iterate on things will be the ones that end up being pretty successful in the back half of the year when things hopefully calm down. Definitely. And whether that looks like um, investing in even training and learning and development so that you're you're educating and informing and growing your team. Um, I want to pivot now to what you're working on with WISE. And this might also be something that employers can start looking at during this time. Um, you started WISE to help develop the next generation of, of female sales leaders. And I'd love to hear more about why you developed that focus and what you observed that kind of um, got you to the place where you realized that this was such a need. So I think it had always been something in the back of my mind. Um, even when I was an individual contributor at Betts and we'd be hiring for companies and, you know, without fail, there would be companies that would come through and say, hey, we're a series B, series C company. Our entire sales team is basically, you know, ex Ivy League lacrosse players and there's nothing with Ivy League lacrosse players. <laughs> That's not, I'm not, there's no, no, uh, no hard feelings there, but this was com- something we commonly hear is like, we have a problem because our entire sales team looks and acts the same. Um, and, and so I remember that being something, especially as a recruiter, I'd have in the back of my mind that was like, well, is the move to just wait and then have this kind of like panic button where you go, oh my goodness, we need to hire more female sellers. Like, no, that doesn't really seem to make much sense, but okay. And then when I got to Bowery, I, I would be working with our companies in the early days and something I, I, 
would really try to um, implore the, our founders to, to think about was being proactive about diversity and inclusion, because it's much easier to be proactive, build a very diverse team early on, as opposed to waiting and then trying to go in and, and piecemeal something together. Uh, so, you know, I, I would also get rather hands-on with boards for our companies. And in 2015, I believe, 2015, 20, no, I'm so sorry. It would have been 2016, 2017, California passed, passed the law that all boards had to have at least one, one woman. So then companies really started to, you know, get serious about looking. And then when you started to look for women that, that had, C-suite experience, executive experience, particularly on the business side and particularly with sales. You tend to see more women in marketing and customer success, but sales, there was a massive gap. Not very many female CROs, not very many female CEOs, uh, even VPs of sales, severely lacking. And so this was just very, very apparent. And I was feeling it as I was looking for these folks. Uh, I, like I said, I think it was something I always knew in the back of my mind, but it, it gets kind of scary when you're when you're going through LinkedIn or you're going through your network and you realize that there's there's just not a whole lot out there. Um, mm -hmm. So the goal with Wise was to build this community, create a forum in which women who are up and coming in their sales careers could meet and learn from women who who were sales leaders. Uh, it, it was amazing in the early days of Wise when we would do these events. I'd have women, girls, guys come up to me and say, I've, I've never met a VP of sales that was a woman. I've always been the only mm -hmm. one on my team that, that was a seller. Um, you know, I always thought I had to pick between being a mom or continuing in my sales career. So it was really inspiring to see a woman speak on the panel who's eight months pregnant and this is her third kid. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so one of the, one of the lines that we talk about quite often is, it can be difficult to be what you can't see. And so if we can surface this and, and connect these people, create mentorship opportunities um, and create channels that otherwise wouldn't be there for women to, to learn and grow in their careers and have this sort of development, I believe that we can, we can change the stats around female executives in sales. Definitely. I, I love that focus on just representation because it, it is so incredibly important. Um, you know, that obviously you're focused on gender representation. Um, you also, you, you need to look at racial representation. And it, like you said, um, kind of bolting it on later is really challenging. And that's when you put your poor recruiter scrambling to try to find um, a unicorn. And if, if you grow it from the very beginning, you, you don't have to scramble later at the end. Um, so I know that's a common mistake that leaders make is they think I can just, you know, start my team and I'm going to hire basically all a bunch of, you know, white men or something. Um, and then later on, I'm just going to bring in a diverse group. That's a pretty common mistake that we see or, or you know, and it's not usually an intentional choice. Usually it's, it's a, you look up and you realize that that's the team you build. Um, but what are some other mistakes that you see leaders making when they're working on improving representation? So I agree with you in that I, I really don't believe this is intentional at all. I think what ends up happening mm -hmm. is companies start, you're in early growth mode. It's just go, 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 bring in, you know, you, you need to hire people quickly. So you're not really thinking about it. You tend to bring in people first and foremost from your network. So they're people you know and trust or a, a 
your people on your board's network, whatever that looks like. And then there's an automatic cloning effect that happens because then those people bring in their network and those, it, it just kind of turns into this domino effect. Um, so I think that ties back to what I see as a, as a thing that ends up hurting companies often is they're constantly going back to the same watering hole for candidates. They're going mm. back to the same pools of candidates expecting different results. Um, so it's incredibly, incredibly important to diversify how you are going out and finding people. Obviously, internal referrals are always going to be a great source. And I'm not saying to stop that by any means. It's You should always be getting internal referrals. But if your initial team is diverse, your internal referrals will then be diverse. Um, Imagine that. (laughs) Partner with with external groups. I know I'm biased because I come from an agency background um, and, and I have agency in my blood, but I think recruiting agencies are an incredible way to ensure that you have a diverse pipeline of candidates. Um, Their entire jobs are to work with hundreds of candidates and hundreds of people at a time and go out and find folks. So utilize those as resources, particularly contingency agencies. It's no cost to the company unless they find someone that you want to hire. You know, make sure that you are going to networking events. I kind of shameless plug for wise, but um, (laughs) you know, I, I think make an effort to see what's in your community and what's going on in your community. And if something like this is, is, uh, you know, top of mind for you, make sure you're, you're taking the time to engage with these groups and get to know people in these communities. Um, you know, I think job boards are, are good. And in, in certain cases, I don't actually think job boards end up being phenomenal for sales. Um, but you know, I think there are some job boards out there that that do a nice job. And so utilize that if that makes sense. Um, but just diversifying where you're getting talent would be step one, because you're, you're going to consistently come up with the same type of person if you only go to one or two channels to find candidates. Yeah, that's a great observation. And it's it's kind of a natural thing, but I think a lot of times we don't think about it. And just recognizing if I've hired my entire team from three colleges um, and they all have very similar majors and they're even similar ages, the only people they know are their classmates who are their fellow employees. And you're even just going to have by by its very nature, a smaller potential pool. But if you're hiring people with all kinds of diverse backgrounds and um, you know diversity across the spectrum of, of a lot of different things, you've got all these different circles um, when it comes to recruiting more people, but also when it comes to um, you know selling, when it comes to getting input and, and feedback, getting um, you know interest in potential offerings that you have, gaining perspectives on ideas that you have. Uh, the more diversity that you have represented. Um, the more potential perspectives you have in in so many different ways that are really beneficial to organizations. So, you know, they they put laws in, like the one in California, to kind of force us, but we shouldn't need to be forced um, to do this. There's value. Um, You know, there's an inherent value in increasing representation and diversity. I I totally agree. And I mean, we know there, there are so many statistics out there. We know that more diverse teams generate more revenue. And, and the reason is because of what you just mentioned, diverse teams are able to attack problems in different ways. They end up seeing things with different perspectives. And so 
challenges tend to be overcome much faster when you have a group of diverse thinkers around the table as opposed to an echo chamber of everybody who thinks, acts, and operates the exact same way. Exactly. Now, um, I know you've talked about a few of them already, but do you have any other um, best practices for leaders who are looking to successfully develop female salespeople and sales leaders and really um, help the, the diverse hires that they bring, may, bring in uh, grow into leadership? I think learning and development is something that can be overlooked uh, very easily, especially in a high growth environment, because everybody is is chasing a number, everybody's heads down and focused on what they're doing. But if you pick your head up and you realize that the way you retain great talent and continue to cultivate great talent is by investing in your talent. Uh, Imagine that. That's how you end up um, building a sustainable company. So you know, we'll see companies all the time that, that make great hires, they hire awesome people, they run them into the ground in a year and the person goes, oh my gosh, I'm not getting any better because I've just been doing the same thing over and over and over again. I know my company cares about me because they tell me they care about me, but I'm not seeing, they're not, they're not investing in me. They're not challenging me, mm. they're not making me better at my job. Um, and so I think, you know, there's some, some learning management systems out there and some tools that folks can utilize to make sure that they're always giving their their folks an opportunity to continue to grow and get better at selling. But I, I'm a huge proponent of bringing in external resources. Again, you know, I, I am biased. I think WISE is a, is a great option for companies um, as this kind of external employee resource group, something that, that companies can utilize um, and offer to women on their sales teams. But John Barros is a phenomenal sales trainer. And, and if your company is able to invest in having him come in and doing some training, you should do it. I was really fortunate to do John Barros training when I was at Betts. Um, you know, working with your team on, I think now more than ever too, because we're all kind of craving this community and this sense of, of uh, being around people. There are so many folks doing webinars right now, encouraging your team to sign up for those. If there's a cost, the company should be paying for that. Um, I know there are companies that have L&D budget for folks to you know, buy books, go to classes, do trainings, whatever that looks like. If the company is not going to do it at the company level, make sure you're at least cutting some budget for your folks. And then mm -hmm. if you're able to start to have an enablement team internally, um, that's great. But also sales leaders and managers need to commit to doing one-on-one -on -one training and individual growth with their people, it's it's very easy to just manage to metrics and manage to hitting a goal. But if we're not investing in making these people better sellers, we're missing the greater picture. Yeah, I think um, I got this in uh, in a leadership training years and years ago, but it, it stuck with me. Is um, you know a, a bad sales manager thinks that their job is to grow sales, and a good sales manager knows that their job is to grow salespeople. And the the revenue will follow mm -hmm. <laughs> if you're developing your team, um, but you'll burn people out. Um, people will leave. They'll they'll feel um, that you're not investing in them and that you don't care about them if all you're focused on is how many calls did you make, what's your pipeline look like. Um, that you know it, that's important, and you need to you need to have those conversations. You need to look at those stats, but that can't be all of it. I something I, I talked to my team quite a bit about is my job is to teach them how to think. 
My job is mm-hmm. to teach them how to make decisions if they couldn't ask me. And and it probably drives them absolutely insane because half of the time they ask me a question, my response is, what would you do if you couldn't ask? And they're always amazed when they know the answer. <laughs> if I can, I, I'm doing my job well if they don't need me to do their job. I'm here to help grow that. They, they know how to run the X's and O's and I'm here as backup when those things fall off and I'm, I'm here to catch the pieces. But they don't become better sellers if I write every template. They don't become mm-hmm. better sellers if I wake up every morning and I'm on them about two ops that you know, ended up getting moved to a different stage and they're not progressing for X, Y, and Z reason. I want them to be able to articulate to me so we can have a conversation what went wrong here and how what we learned from that and what we can do moving forward. Um, mm-hmm. Especially with junior sales managers, oftentimes, like you're saying, we see people just manage to metrics and the bigger picture gets lost and and if your people don't know how to think critically and you're not teaching them how to look at the big picture, they're never ever going to get to where you want them to get to. Absolutely. And it's also, it's a modeling exercise because if you as a sales leader are um, investing in your team and doing the coaching and the training and um, investing in external partners and resources to provide more learning and training, then you're going to see some of your salespeople are going to step up into leadership positions and you're going to give them additional, hopefully, training. You're not just going to change their title to sales manager and not teach them how to do it, which we see that a lot. Um, And they're going to know that what it takes to improve as a salesperson and as a leader is learning and development and coaching. And so they're going to do the same thing themselves. It's really, um, you can't hold people to a standard that you're not willing and able to to follow yourself. And one of the most important things you can do as a leader that's looking to to grow and develop a team is to invest in their learning and development. Yep. I I, I totally agree. And the the best leaders, the best coaches, the best managers I've worked for, I've known beyond a shadow of a doubt that they wouldn't ask anything of me that they haven't already done or wouldn't be willing to do. And so mm. that's always something I've I've tried to echo to the team is you know, everything I'm I'm telling you, everything you're doing right now, I have done, I am doing in some cases, um, and <laughs> I, I would do again because I, going back to what we talked about at the beginning a bit with the founder-led selling, I know this works because I did it. Um, yes. Yeah. And, and you, it's a lot easier to hold people accountable to something when you've done it before. And you're still doing it, maybe, and and you know how to do it. Um, when you're setting expectations of people that you've never done yourself, there's a high likelihood that they're not realistic, or yeah. um, you might, you know, have a have a bad idea of what the numbers are. You might have, you know, you might think they're too low or too high. Um, if you do it yourself, you're you're validating that it works, and then you're you're giving yourself a lot of credibility um, when you need to sometimes have hard conversations with your team. Yep, it's so true. All right. Um, I know I love to read and learn a lot from um, from books. So do you have any books that you would recommend to our listeners? I do. Um, and I, I, I'll give you a, a couple of names, but worth noting too. So I have become an absolute masterclass 
geek over the last week. I, I reached a point, I've actually finished Tiger King and I sat there on the couch and was like, I can't believe I just did that. I have got to log off of Netflix. I can't do this in my spare time. I don't So uh, I, I downloaded Masterclass. I highly recommend it for anyone who's looking for things to kind of watch or do when they're not working or doing whatever they're doing right now. Um, but one of the lessons in Masterclass is Chris Voss, who wrote The Art of Negotiation, which mm. is one of my sales books. Um, so I actually just finished his Masterclass. I read, I've read i read Art of Negotiation twice now, and the last time I finished it was last year. But it was actually really fun to watch and, and follow along with the Masterclass as well, because he touches on a lot of the principles that he touches on in the book. Um, so Art of Negotiation is always one that, that I recommend to folks. And then the second one isn't sales specific, but it's called The Power of Habit. And I think it's mm-hmm. crucial to sales. So it talks a lot about just how habits are made, how we, how long it, it takes 21 days to set a habit, um, the importance of habits, the the positioning in your mind of how to create good habits and how to kind of psychologically um, work through making something that might at first be slightly uncomfortable into a habit that, that you eventually learn to love. And I think especially for SDRs or folks in the early part of their sales career, certain things can feel very monotonous and very frustrating. Um, and so I think the the power of habit does a really nice job of contextualizing some of some of what we end up doing in sales um, and allows you to think about the big picture. So those would probably be my my two favorites. Absolutely. I, I cannot um cannot say any anything high enough, um, Chris Voss, that art of negotiation, it is so incredibly powerful. And it really disabuses, I think, uh, a lot of bad um, ideas that we have related to the concept of negotiation. So many people's perception of what negotiation looks like is is really um, pretty off base. And and we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Um, and, and he learned it the hard way. So, um, and then uh, you, I think, are the second or the third person in the last month that has recommended the power of habit. So I definitely really? need to check I that one out. <laughs> <laughs> it's a... Habits are so important. Um, that's that's what makes you successful, really long term. Um, so often people think that the secret to success is like, you know, uh, one key moment. But really, it's the habits that you build every single day. And um, that's not fun to hear, mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's true. <laughs> um, so it's it's something to work on. I'm, All right, uh, Alexander, I... Sorry. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm, I'm kind of a nerd for... for sports books as well. And so if people like Power of Habit, any of the John mm-hmm. Wooden books, I think are also phenomenal. John Wooden was a, a basketball coach for UCLA for kind of the heyday of UCLA basketball. He talks a lot about habits and being prepared. So for anybody who likes that and maybe wants to, to do something else, all of the Wooden books are also great. I was super proud of myself when I recognized that name, I think, because I put together an ebook on coaching way back in the day and, and we took his quotes. I'm not much of a basketball person, but there is so much that we can learn. I think um, sometimes it's a bit of an overused analogy, um, sports to, to business and to sales, but there is a reason that those analogies keep coming out because a lot of the principles from sports and the principles from coaching especially can be can be incredibly relevant. So, um, especially if you are a more sports minded person, I'm a hockey person, not, not sports at all. But, um, if you're, if you're a big sports fan, um, specifically if you're a basketball fan, it's always nice when you can read something from a famous basketball coach and it's just, it's refreshing, you know, a little bit different than a standard 
business book. All right, Alexander, I have so enjoyed our conversation today. I'm sure our listeners um, have as well. And I hope a lot of them are interested in learning more about you and your work. So if so, where should they go? So if, if folks want to learn more about WISE, our website is womenandsaleseverywhere.com. And for anyone interested in learning more about Closer IQ, we're at closeriq.com, C-L-O-S-E-R-I-Q.com. Wonderful. Um, and then they can check you out in, on LinkedIn, and we'll include a link to your LinkedIn in the show notes if anybody else is interested in reaching out to you directly, Perfect. if that's okay. All right. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate your time. Thanks, Elizabeth. Take care. Thanks for listening to Let's Talk Sales. Don't forget to subscribe to our show. You can do so from wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about today's guest? Head to the show notes at criteriaforsuccess.com slash pod246. If you have any questions, comments, or guest suggestions, feel free to email us at podcast at criteriaforsuccess.com. Let's Talk Sales is a production of Criteria for Success. Happy selling!